Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Wallace. Good evening. Evening. Hello. Actually, a podcast could be listened to at any time of day, so I regretted that as soon as I said it. Yeah, well, it is our evening, so that's fine. Um, okay, so today, I think, got a little bit of follow-up and some news that's interesting that I think we can cover off, but then I really want to dive into the old computers topic, which we started uh, nudging into last time, which should be quite fun. Back in episode five, ages ago, we talked about OLED, uh, OLED displays and displays in general and how that was the way things were going. And then when the iPhone 10 came out last year, Apple finally went OLED, it was brilliant. And then this year, 10S, that's so hard to say, XS <laughs> display is really quite incredible. I mean, an Antec review says, these are the best calibration results we've come to measure, not only in a smartphone, but likely any display. Literally nothing negative to say about it. And in terms of picture quality, the best displays in the market. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, have you looked at one yet in person? I, I have looked at one in person. It is quite impressive to look at. Yeah, and then, okay, so directly following up for last time, what is this about cloud object backups? So some, we had some feedback on Twitter there. Yeah, so last time when we talked about backups, I mentioned that people should be backing up their server and cloud files. Um, I'm going to suggest another thing now, which is if you use Amazon S3, and I'm sure Google Cloud and Azure have like similar features, turn on versioning for your buckets and the objects in those buckets, because... Sometimes people accidentally delete things and want to get them back. And if you've got versioning turned on, you can get the objects back. And then you can set up another rule that deletes deleted their old versions after, say, 30 days or something. So you've got 30 days to recover from your mistake. Oh, okay, cool. So you can have, like, built-in backupping. Yeah, so, and I suppose you could say it's a backup because Amazon are kind of too big to fail, really, um, if you're using Amazon S3. Um, but, like, I have this turned on for everything I do work-wise. I now have automation around turning it on. And shortly after our previous episode, I, I was really saved with this. I had to, like, undelete thousands of files that a script went about mental and deleted. Definitely recommend that. Versioning Amazon S3, look up what the equivalent is on other cloud. Well, good tip. I'll have to look into that myself. You've also got a link here, Backblaze link, about cloud storage durability. Yeah, so let me, we've talked about Backblaze before. They do, like, backup. We talked about them during our backup episode. For years, they've done articles about... Um, hard drive reliability because they have like tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of hard drives at this point so they can actually take particular models and see trends within models and you know data manufacture and all that sort of thing they publish them every few months i think once a quarter and with new updated stats and they have been talking about their own durability across their sort of cloud storage and they run their own servers with these hard drives in them Um, and they're talking about how much work it takes to get um a living nines of durability, which is a very unlikely chance that your files will go, will go missing. It takes a hell of a lot of work to do that. This is a blog post where they go into how they do that. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on here. They even have the complex maths for you know um, unexpected events and that sort of thing. Um, it's well worth a read if you're into durability and backups and thinking about these things. Even if you're not at this scale and you're not looking for this level of durability which most people aren't because it's just unachievable with a sort of small budget this is well worth a read it'll just get you thinking yeah it's, i think it's worth as you say to get you thinking it's, it's kind of like does durability matter and what is it is one thing it's it's kind of pet hates of mine is when people don't understand the math behind things like um, probabilities people are not good at intuitively and accuracies people are not good at yeah um because it's, it's related to the same thing it's a chance of something happening yeah if you like so um 
like the kind of example there, if something's very rare, you can make a very accurate detector that just always says it never finds it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, closely related to this is the idea that people try, keep trying to... They've got a startup or they've got some new application and they try to copy the architecture that Google and Facebook have successfully published about. Now, we've talked about Google and Facebook's uh, AI experiments where they use crazy numbers of GPUs that are just unavailable to most of us. Um, the same thing applies to their sort of their web apps and their backends. They have architectures that only work at their scale and it's very unlikely you'll be successful at a smaller scale with the same architecture but the same ideas there it's interesting to read about these things and find out how they do it and then you can apply some of the lessons to your own projects at a smaller scale even if you're not doing exactly the same thing yeah i mean yeah the deep articles like this really helps you understand like the core problem or what is it and how do you measure the relevant things yeah i think is important anyway so in the random news i like this first one you've put in which is basically skype is trolling us all yeah, so we've actually stopped using Skype for the last few sessions of recordings just because it was behaving weird and doing weird things with our microphones and we weren't having a good time. So we've been using FaceTime audio calls recently and it seems to be okay. Uh, this was uh, someone's tweet. Um, someone whose name, I'm guessing they might be called Nick Bravo. They're probably not. They don't have their name on their Twitter account. Um, so they discovered or noticed that Skype during silent periods inserts a white noise into the audio that that you hear and now I would guess this happens on the sort of listener side rather than the sender side so they're not having to encode this noise in the audio stream and send it across the wire because that would cost bits and um, so it's definitely happening on the, the, the receiver side uh, and when I looked into this and I was like this must have something to do with like it must be some sort of comfort thing like humans like hearing a bit of noise or not knowing the line's gone dead and this is exactly what it is I'll have a link to this in the show notes and a link to the Wikipedia article for comfort noise which covers this sort of thing yeah it's just Skype is terrible don't use Skype for broadcasting basically yeah but I wonder if other, if other like I wonder if um, FaceTime audio calls do this because if you know if the if the line's silent you know they should be sending no data across the wire but people still like to hear something mm. you know yeah. It's like people were used to like the noise telephones would make, like old style analog telephones would make when you picked them up, and it made a noise even if you weren't on a call. Mm. Um, just sort of reassuring that yeah, the call's still there; it's not dropped. Okay, so this next thing, interesting point you put in here, you've dumped in the Threadripper two link, and this is an interesting one because basically it performs much better under Linux and under Windows. Yeah, um, so Thread, I don't think we've talked about Threadripper two. It's um, AMD's second generation of their sort of high end desktop chips. Um, I think they now have up to thirty two cores. Um, I'll see if I can get links to proper benchmarks. These were the early benchmarks in Pharonix, and they were comparing Linux to Windows performance. And yeah, the Linux performance seemed to be significantly better, and not on just one Linux across a, a range of Linux. They test Windows ten and Clear Linux, Ubuntu eighteen oh four, and Antergos, which I've never heard of, uh, and um, OpenSUSE, um, and all the Linux flavors had like, like yeah, more than ten percent, right? Is yeah, that... significantly better performance. So I'm not across a wide range of benchmarks. Yeah, it's probably a scheduler thing, right? So it's probably a scheduler thing, but I also wonder if Windows 10 Pro has been quicker to get some of the sort of Spectre meltdown style mitigations in software. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they don't really make an attempt to explain it in this article. They're just pointing out that it exists. Um, I'll need to see if there's been any follow-up on this to see if anyone's looked into it a bit more. But it's certainly, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then you got, obviously, NVIDIA's RTX cards have been out since we last chatted. Um, no news here, really, other than that they're they're real fast now. Um, 
the interesting the interesting thing i guess with them is they brought the tensor cores into the consumer yeah, kit, yeah. Uh, which means if you can use the tensor cores if you're doing something i mean and to use the tensor cores easily basically that means you're using a, a relatively standard deep network model that's got a support for a tensor good good support in tensor rt then you get huge performance increases yeah right? Really impressive performance increases. I mean, I think the gaming performance increases. It's like it's the usual sort of step to step Nvidia sort of family performance improvement. Um, I think it's interesting they brought the tensor cores over, and on the consumer side, they're using that in games to do um, some denoising of the ray tracing hardware they've got as well. Yeah, and and some better um, super sampling stuff. But yeah, yeah. But one of the interesting things we've talked before about Nvidia sort of licensing towards you know not being able to use consumer GPUs in a data center environment. The coolers they now have on the new RTX, um, yeah, RTX uh, cards are a lot more unfriendly to having at least the founders edition are a lot more unfriendly to having the cards sitting next to each other in a machine so. super unfriendly they're, they're not the sort that blow at the back they're the sort that have the um internal fans yeah and we had a multi-gpu machine built with cards like that and they just yeah they just don't like long sustained loads they just, you need you need the blower style that exhaust out the back yeah um and so i suspect that's why they've done it yeah yeah, although i've not had a look but i think it's as this usually do the sort of all black square blower style shroud thing the aftermarket or third party cards are already available for the rtx gpus so should be able to get it yeah the quadro rtx's are old style blowers because you might legitimately be putting many of them in a machine and they cost yeah. so much money anyway yeah you're already yeah. paying the premium yeah you put the vid to vid the deep video synthesis stuff i think we had that before did we talk about that before I think we talked about it before, but I think we talked about it before it was at a conference. We can obviously cut this out if we have talked about it before, but it was at a conference um, and it was unreleased code. And this was like the actual, they released the PyTorch um, implementation of this so you can actually run it. And the idea here is you take a a video that's been labeled so that, um, you know, deep learning tasks can be run against it. And then you just take those labels and not the video data and then you try and recreate the video just using the labels it's ludicrously impressive. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm looking at, aha, because we looked at Pix2Pix HD before, whereas this has got temporal smoothing in it, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, you get a really nice-looking video out of the far side of it. I've not had a chance to run this yet. Um, I'm really interested in running this, because, it, yeah, it's just cool. It's one of the best things I've seen in a while. And what's this Deep Angel thing? If you click through it, it's a website that's where you can... It inter- uses... It's an interactive website where you can take photographs and choose to remove objects from them, and it it, um, it removes the objects using a neural net. It's a bit like the Facebook Facebook. It's a bit like the Photoshop Magic Erase tool, where it erases objects and sort of fill in the background for you, but doing it automatically without you choosing where the object is. You're just saying what the object is in the scene. No, I'm just looking at an example. It's pretty cool. It's not as good as like Magic Erase type stuff, but it's impressive that it works at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually, um, without opening a console, I think it's actually working using the um, the neural net in JavaScript on the browser. Okay. So it's not doing it on the server at all, so it's actually managing to do it with sort of a relatively small amount of power. And then, um, speaking of small amount of power, there's some core ML on uh, iOS 12 benchmarks here, which, have you looked at these? Yeah, I've had a quick look, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how much better the neural network stuff got. Um, the core ML stuff got it got better on iOS 12, but then the the 10s and 10s Max and presumably the 10R are insanely fast. Yeah, more than sort of 10x runtime increase. 
and this this is because they need to run, they want to run all the stuff in real time in the camera. That, that's yeah. why. So it's camera stuff. It's, it's pretty impressive. Like huge. That is that is the single biggest increase in the new iPhones. Yeah, I mean, they, they, there's lots of sort of quite uh, impressive stats about the new iPhone hardware, or especially the CPUs I've seen. And um, there was a post by a Twitter post. I'll put a link in the show notes. But David Hennemeyer Hansen, uh, the sort of creator of Ruby on Rails, and he was saying that the iPhone XS, yep, hard to say. Um, is faster on a particular JavaScript benchmark than his iMac Pro is. Um, and a few people, I think ATP, had a bit of chat about this and they wondered if it was because there was a large amount of L1 cache on the CPU on the iPhone. Actually, the, the latest thinking on that is because it's got the new ARM instruction set, which includes floating point um, math operations that behave in exactly the way that JavaScript expects them to in terms of handling ah. and error cases. So normally when you're doing floating point math in javascript there's a translation to different operations and then back again to get it in and out the cpu whereas you completely yep. avoid that in the new arm instruction set so massive massive speed up because it's the instruction set in the cpu is tailored to match what javascript wants to do and what oh, javascript but... wants is terrible terrible things yeah yeah it wants terrible things um safari does some interesting stuff i've talked about it before where he uses llvm um a low-level virtual machine to sort of compile the javascript into the machine code um, for some some of the JavaScript doesn't do this with all of it, um, and if what you're saying is the case, and we'll find the link and put it in the, sh- the show notes. That would mean they're doing less translation work, um, so they're just like it's sort of almost like a direct. Well, it's a lot less data marshalling, you know, yeah. marshalling yeah. and marshalling out of it. So yeah. that's that's the hypothesis anyway. Um, yeah, and the other fact I saw, and I think it was you that linked me th- to this, was that uh, iPhone CPU can run can consume up to 7 watts for several seconds. Yeah, with the GPU under load it's absolutely mental. That's yeah. a huge amount of wattage for such a small small device. Huge peak. Okay, also in CPU news, we should rattle through this. Um, new <laughs> Intel CPUs? Yeah, so the first the first thing we've got is um let me get the let me get the right links. Um is the new uh Whiskey Lake U and Amber Lake Y uh Mac, um, MacBook CPUs. Uh so well, small basically they are. Yeah, yeah, they're basically MacBook CPUs, a small notebook CPUs, and these are CPUs that are targeted like 15 watt and 5 watt um, TDPs. Um, on the 5 watt, then they're two core, four thread as they were before, and on the 15, they are four core, eight thread, or two core, four thread, depending on what model you get. Um, but yeah, they're basically talking about getting four cores and a MacBook. Yeah, I mean, no real news there. I've got some. 8 series coffee lake 4 core in a macbook size thing so yeah yep cool though and the other sort of related news to this is until announced new sort of desktop cpus um there's i9 so there's i7 9700k i5 9600k the i5 is yeah, so the i5 is 6 core 6 thread the i7 is 8 core 8 threads there's also an i9 9900k which is 8 cores and 16 threads um, these are high clock of, though, right? Yeah, crazy high clock. Yeah, five five gigahertz peak. Um, these are not out yet. They're out pretty soon. I think reviews drop this week or next week. Um, but it's just the next generation of Intel's desktop CPUs are stuck in another two cores on every CPU. And we've still got more more ten nanometer appearing as well in weird low end stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I see this link now. Yeah, one of the Intel Nux. Yeah, the, the Intel Nux. I think we've maybe talked about them before. They, they are like a sort of super interesting form factor. It's the kind of thing where it's like it's a CPU in a tiny box with an SSD. And I've always wanted to try and find a use for one, but can just never think of one. I've used them in uh, robotics before. They're good for that. Okay, you can just tape them to someone and plug something and plug them in. 
Yeah, pretty much. And some of them take quite wide input voltage ranges, which is handy if you're on a battery power platform. Yeah. Um, you can get away with less less um, power controller hardware. Yeah. Until a while ago, I had a demo of like a 28-core CPU, and it was super overclocked, and then the samples went missing from the the show floor or whatever show they were at, and there was a big hoo-ha about it. Well, now they've actually released a product based on this called the Intel Xeon W-3175X, which is 28 cores. It consumes all the power. You basically need a special motherboard. 260 watts, yeah, it's mad. Yeah, special motherboard with, like, all the power pins in the world. Um, it's is got it two twenty, Yeah, yeah 224-pin ATX power connectors, along with four 8-pins and two 6-pins. It's mad, but and awesome. one board. Yeah. Awesome. And you need... You're going to need some mega cooler for it. It's a yeah. pretty interesting piece of kit. I'm looking forward to seeing the actual benchmarks for this. Yeah, Intel, if you're listening, we'll have one each. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, should we get into our main topic? Yeah, yeah. So we talked about old computers. And I think this started because we've had a link in the show notes. Uh, for age, or Not a link, a thing in the show notes that says, the hole in Doug's office while the printer made. Of all the computing products that have ever been created, the one I hate the most, and hate's probably the right word, is printers. It's just super neglected by all of the computing industry. And now the printer market's pretty, I would say, predatory, where you buy a cheap printer, but then it costs more to replace the cartridges in it. Um, and I had one inkjet printer, I still have it, it's at my feet, um, right below the hole in the wall. Um, <laughs> where I, I only print something once or twice a month, usually a document to send somewhere. So when I want to print it, I really want it to print so I can send it somewhere. And yeah, I used to have to replace cartridges in it every two months sort of thing. Yeah, and one day it just wasn't working in it. Yeah. It took off from its rightful place on the desk and made it, made its way, short way across the room to the wall. And, you know, the plaster's <laughs> got a hole in it. And it's one of the few times I've ever got angry at an inanimate object. Yeah, so now I have a nice laser printer that works great every time I want it to. Oh, I just, I just uh, binned my printer. I don't have a printer anymore. There's no need for it. Anyway, so favourite old PCs. We, had, we actually had some good feedback on this uh, when we started talking about old machines. So some votes for uh, Commodore 64. That's a classic. Mm. I loved it. Like uh, Computers with tape drives, right? Yeah. It's just awesome. And I remember um, like, <laughs> feels like early IoT type stuff. I remember with a friend C64, we wrote this program that you could load and then take the tape out and then it would drive the tape deck in such a way that you could Wire connect the tape deck up to something else so it could lock and unlock the door by turning the spindles. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, IoT your heart out. It's all about a C sixty four of things. So I remember, I remember a neighbor a next door neighbor when I was a kid having that Commodore. I don't remember very much about it. We had like a, a Spectrum, one of the ones with the sort of rubbery keys. Mm. Um, and I remember the eventual use for that was after we got an Amstrad, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, it was like the the spectrum was sort of hollowed out, and there was I went to a Halloween party as a computer. Like I was in like the the cardboard monitor, which is just the cardboard box with a thing cut out the front of it, and like the keyboard was in front of me. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was its final use. Yeah, all right. So, so what Amstrad? Okay, so when I was a kid, the computers we had at home before we had PCs, or before we had like what you describe as like a modern PC, they were like PC clones, Amstrads. Um, so we had a PC fifteen twelve, which was like a big desktop. Um, and I remember it had like two diskette drives or two disk drives or floppy disk drives, that's what I'm looking for 
That's um, not right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can't remember, it's so long ago. But it was big ones, like five and a quarter inch or whatever they were. Mm. They were actually floppy. I was always really confused at how the smaller ones were. When men were men and floppies were floppy. Yeah. yeah. And I think we had like a an optional, I think it was like five or ten megabyte hard drive in it. So you could actually load stuff off the disks. Mm. Um, like work I'm, perfect. You could have on the machine without having to stick a diskette in. I should just say, anyone that's busy composing an email to tell Doug about a five and a quarter floppy isn't actually a big floppy. Um, you're showing your age. Yeah, yeah, I'm not old enough to have ever used it. Was it 12 inch or 9 inch or something like that? It was that. somewhere 7, yeah. Yeah, massive. And then the other Amstrad we had was an Amstrad PPC 640. I don't know if you've opened this link, link in the show notes. What's going on? Oh, links, cool. yeah. links actually PPC 512. And it, this was an Amstrad. Oh, was like, a 640 there. Yeah, like notebook. Can you call it a notebook? You certainly can't man call it a, portable. a laptop. Yeah, man, man port- portable computer. With like a little like green, like almost LCD display. Is it an LCD display? I can't remember. Yeah. But the, I mean, apart from being portable, the thing I remember on this machine was it had a modem. Uh, my dad used to be able to check email and such like on it. And we had the BT Gold, oh. um, which is like a service from British Telecom in the UK that let people sort of communicate and kind of email of, so yeah, electronic messages. mail yeah, yeah. It was, yeah it was before sort of the internet and email was a sort of like a thing um, and then I think after that we had some other computer that could connect to the actual internet but yeah it was uh, they're both pretty cool, cool pieces of kit um, that I used a lot as a kid oh and you've got the BBC Micro and the Acorn in here I think um, it was Dan actually a friend of mine suggested the suggested the Acorn because uh well, no, you suggested the Acorn, and then he was uh, pointing out the fact it's got the entire graphical OS in ROM. They're, they were awesome machines. They were always like the classic example of a risk machine in school computing exercises. Yeah, so like the uh, the Acorn's like really weird. There was a discussion on Hacker News about high end uh, risk, and someone pointed out, oh, like the UK schools had like you know high end risk in the early nineties because they were quite a high end machine. They had some pretty advanced features in the CPUs and uh, and the other capabilities, um, but. They were just never popular outside the schools. And the only reason they were popular in schools is because Tesco, the supermarket in the UK, ran a scheme where if you did your shopping, you got some uh, computers for schools vouchers and you could hand them at the school and then the school could get either a big discount or some free computers. But the computers you could get were Acorn Archimedes. So everyone had Acorn Archimedes and that's why. Yeah, Our ARM CPUs, the bit back when they were, they were, unu- they were unusual and now uh, everything's an ARM nowadays. Yeah, I mean, like, like, there was a period before the iPhone came out, but after the Acorn Archimedes, where it's just like ARM CPUs, what are they for? So, in our ARM on the desktop uh, episode that we did a while ago, why didn't we bring out the Acorn? Yeah, we should have done. That would have been a, a lovely trump card for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Huh. Uh, see, I don't have any really old computers like this, because I can't remember the really old stuff I used. I remember, like, things about it. Like, I remember having some sort of x86 thing where you could fit the entire keyboard inside the desktop unit oh yeah um and obviously like two two eight sixes with turbo buttons and so on yeah yeah um yeah i think it's more more modern computers the first computer i actually had i didn't get until i went to university it's the first time i actually owned my own computer yeah that was the same for me like i think i remember we had the machine at home with like a like like the 286s with the turbo buttons, like there's like a series of like probably like 286, 386, 486DX, you know. And I don't remember if I have the Pentium. I remember having a Celeron 500 that I used as a long time for a server in my flat once I went to the university. But then the first computer I owned was, yeah, at university. It might even have been second year. So, what was your favourite computer? Oh, favourite? Yeah, what was your favourite then? 
I think my favourite computer ever, and it's just because of the sort of change it brought about for me, might have been my um, 12-inch Apple iBook G3. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had a yeah. series of incidents where self-built, custom-built PCs, sort of gaming-style PCs, um, had had like a series of small fires. Um, <laughs> a series of small fires? <laughs> I never set anything on fire. Yeah, just too much overclocking, I think. Not um, even like... Um, Check out this yonky nonsense I'm about to send you a picture of. So, like, the, the iBook was something I've just bought on a chance, secondhand. Like, I'll see what this Apple deal is about. And, oh, oh yeah, that is... It's that cardboard inside the case. <laughs> you can put this in the show notes, yeah. Um, I'll explain myself in a minute. Yeah. So, you got an iBook. I got an iBook when they're new. Did you have an iBook with Wi-Fi? No, so my first one was, like, a secondhand. It cost me, like, three or four hundred quid. And I had to go and get OS ten for it separately. It came with OS nine, which I used for a few days. I got OS ten from someone locally in Edinburgh. Um, put that on it. I transformed it. The thing I loved about it most, and this is going to sound really weird, is that at university, all the programming we did, or most of the programming we did, was in Java. And the Mac already had Java on it, so you didn't have to go through the absolute pain of installing Java. Um, it just worked. It was great. Oh, so I had, a, I had an iBook as well with the the uh, G3 or G4 I think I had a G4 um, the 12 inch ones anyway the, the yeah. kind of square ones that everyone remembers uh, like the PowerBook G4s and yeah the thing I liked about that was it had a Unix system so I could do a lot of my uni work was like GCC and I could have GCC yeah. in there and I could have a great debugger as well so it's yeah. pre-clang and LLVM um, but I guess I should explain this fire this particular fire risk I just uh, <laughs> so that is a, a screaming fast I think I think that's a Pentium 3 on that board somewhere underneath all that. And there's a lot going on here. You'll notice what looks like a box of matches at the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not actually any matches in there. That's just housing some... Um... It doesn't look like a box of matches. It's literally a box of matches. I can see the label on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's not got matches in it anymore. It's some okay. board it's in definitely there. definitely safe then. There's some VeraBoard in there and wired up some stuff to connect to into a parallel port header on the motherboard, which then feeds to a light array on the front of it to monitor CPU load via some LEDs on the front. Was obviously. it RGB? Uh, there was RGB, actually, yeah. Oh, that's ahead of the time. I wonder if I've got a picture of the front of it. I don't think I've got a picture of the front of it. Anyway, and I wrote a little Linux driver to, to do that. And then that, that cardboard is part of the ducting. Oh, wait, no, this isn't... Uh, there's no GP. Oh no, there is a GPU in here. Sorry, this is a um, a two hundred twenty-five megahertz Pentium. This machine. So what's the graphics card? Right. <laughs> so you see the box of matches just up from yeah. the box of matches to the left of the sellotape together cabling. Uh, that's the graphics card. I realise that's the graphics card, but I don't recognise what it is. Right. So you see those brown things on the right? They were sockets to fit in an extra megabyte of RAM. Ooh. You could actually upgrade the RAM in this graphics card just by pushing in two more RAM chips. So it had two megabytes of RAM. Ah, oh, massive. I can't remember what it actually was. Yeah, and anyway, that cardboard is part of the ducting arrangement to try and direct some more air up towards the CPU, which is kind of just out of sight on this, which was running a bit hot due to its extreme overclock from up to <laughs> 225 megahertz. Nice. Yeah, I mean, this is what the inside of my PC cases usually look like. I wasn't... I was a student. I didn't have the money to buy fancy cables and stuff. I used oh, yeah, tape. This, yeah, this this computer um, cost me six pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, so that was, that was um, I don't know if it was my favourite computer. I think the iBook, the iBook is a good call. So, they, like, I had that G3 iBook for, like, three or four months and realised it was the real deal and I really liked using it. So I actually bought, like, a new G4, like, a few months later, like, just after New Year. 
like a G4. I can't remember if it was a one gigahertz one. Or a uh, mine was eight hundred. It could have been mine was mine was an eight hundred megahertz or something. Yeah, yeah, like su- super good machine. Like I, um, yeah, I had it for like two years. Yeah, two years until the the sort of white first white until MacBook came out. And then after that, the Macs get a bit bored, and it's just a series of MacBook Pros. Just assume I got a MacBook Pro every time I got a new machine, and you're done. That's the story. I had a Hackintosh for a while. Oh, yeah, I remember uh, that. It was pretty good. Um, I'm trying to see if I've got a good picture of it. I don't have a good picture of it. It just looks like a, a PC box, but it, it worked quite well. I think that was during the era where a Hackintosh could actually work quite well. Um, Paul Haddad of Tapbots, he tried to build one recently and I think he was saying this stuff like iMessage and a few other things just don't work because they expect certain kernel modules for sort of secure messaging and such like and they won't load if they don't recognise the system so you just can't get it. Yeah, it was before they put a lot of security stuff in the BIOS um, and when you, when you still, well, when you still had BIOSes and you'd put an EFI. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was quite good back, back then but nowadays it's not really worth it. Um, what else do we have here about old computers? So one thing I wanted, it's in, it was in the sort of early section, I wanted to complain about this. One of the things I loved about the old Amstrads and old PCs in general is you would get those sort of like semi-opaque sort of flexible plastic keyboard covers or monitor covers. Is that what you want? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. You see, so you finish using the machine, you put this plastic cover over it and it doesn't get covered in dust because like it's my gaming PC at Mother Desk. I only use it every so often. I can see from here like the, the keyboard is covered in dust and that would not happen if there was a cover. I just want people to make nice keyboard covers. <laughs> so my RGB is visible when it's actually on oh, yeah. and there's not yeah. dust on top of it. <laughs> get on it. Someone, surely someone's going to meet this need. If not, um, Kickstarter beckons yeah there's a market for this you need to custom make them because everyone's stuff's different shapes now there's not like three keyboards there's three thousand surely you can i don't know somehow 3d print one or something i mean it's just um it was like vinyl or something it can't be hard to like cut and glue it or i should look into this <laughs> you should look into it yeah i can get something 3d printed custom custom made right you could take um could take a couple of photos, use an open source structure from Motion Pipeline to build a 3D model of it and then feed that into something which could uh Yeah. Print it uh, print a keyboard cover for you. Mm. Oh, so here here's another thing we've got in the notes here. I've just got the single the name of it. Pocket PC. Um I'm gonna say for some reason, but for some reason my dad decided that something would be a good idea, idea uh, a good idea to buy an HP Pocket PC, which is a they thing. Well the HP was an iPad, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an iPad, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, like, it's hard to describe. Like, imagine, like, the, the current biggest size of iPhone, but then make it, like, four times as thick. And it's somehow, a PDA, if you yeah, don't remember. Yeah, it's like remember. a PDA that ran Windows CE or Windows something. I don't know, it had a touchscreen. Um, I, I, I was never sure what people were supposed to use them for, especially because the battery ran out pretty quickly. But the best thing, I've, I've still got it. I've got it in the cupboard. Um, I'll post awesome. pictures. Um, I'm like, I might have posted pictures before. I've got like a, it's got like a flip up cover on the front to protect yeah, the yeah, screen. Yeah. So I had the replacement one that also has like a keyboard on it. Awesome. So, and then the other thing I've got is like a fold out keyboard. So it's like a laptop. Do size. you have like a um, compact flash Wi Fi adapter for it? Yes. Yeah, quality. So the folding keyboard is about the size of like a notebook keyboard now, um, but it folds up into this little thing that was actually smaller than the Pocket PC. It's pretty nifty. Yeah. It's a cool. The reason I've kept it up around is just because I think it's a cool bit of computing history. It's like if I had an Apple Newton, I'd keep that around as well. Yeah, the Pocket PCs were super popular for a while for like portable computing. Like I used them a bunch for um, 
portable computers for doing robotic stuff. Like this is back when Wi-Fi was a novelty, so you even have a small thing that could even speak Wi-Fi. It was quite novel. Yeah. Um, you know, I found a picture of um, earlier today actually, which I found hilarious talking about old computers. It was. Um, uh, I wonder if I could find the picture. Oh, I can't remember. It was a picture of a Dell Streak I used to use for development stuff. Okay. Do you remember what that was? No. So a Dell Streak was an Android mobile phone that had a comically enormous screen. It was absolutely vast, this phone. Everyone thought it was super hilarious that anyone would ever have a phone this big. This Yeah, this rings a bell, because that isn't that long ago, really. No, but do you, do you want to guess how big the, the screen on a Dell Streak is? I don't know, like, 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 is it like ten inches, something like that? So everyone thought they were comically enormous. No one would ever use them, right? So, how big is this screen? Have you sent me a picture? No, no, it's a five-inch screen. It's a five-inch screen. Oh bloody hell! That's <laughs> just like a normal phone. <laughs> well, yeah, that's I'm... like a small-sized phone now. Yeah, but... I know. But at the time, this was like. I just remember, like, look up old Dell Street reviews for a laugh, right? You'll find people saying, like, oh, no one ever wants this, you know, it's too big, etc., etc. Yeah. It's hilarious. Oh, man. So, like, another thing I've got in the notes here is um, how the world of computing was represented in high school computing. Now, I don't know about other places in the world, but in the UK we have, where we did have computing in high school, where you'd learn some computing stuff. you get to use an Acorn or later a PC. Um... But there was a few things I loved in it, and I realised that like, later on that these were a bit of a fallacy. And I'd never heard of them as a kid, and then you're never going to get to use them afterwards. But they talked about computing in terms of mainframes and batch processing of jobs. And that's what I do all the time with my training my uh, deep network so Yeah, but you're not doing all, you're not doing all the main, a mainframe. Yeah, mini computer. Yeah, mini computer. So there was that, and then there was like net the, the, the network top up. Topography? Oh, yeah, token ring bus. I had a token ring network. I had a load of uh, town based tea. Yeah, but like the Coax time they were cable. teaching this to me, no one had that. You know, oh, yeah. like it, it was all. It I was, was like a Ethernet. student. I was a skint student. I did. I did upgrade to Ethernet not long after because ten based tea is a massive pain. Yeah, it's like people would talk about land parties going round to other house, and you'd, going to other people's houses, and you would spend half the time trying to get the, the serial cables, cables yeah. to work. Yeah, although ten based tea is worse than that, but yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I think that's probably enough reminiscing for now. Yeah. Um, if you've got a favourite old computer or a hated old computer, that's ooh, maybe that's a good follow up. Yeah, I'd like what, that. What, what computer did you like the least? Let's save that for next time. Then you can uh, either tweet us at Pinkout Podcast, use the hashtag at Pinkout, or write to us at wrong on the internet at pinkoutpodcast.com. Um, you'll find show notes at pinkoutpodcast.com also. And if you want to tweet us directly, I'm at the underscore accidental. And Doug's at Douglas F. Shearer. Uh, should we just... Is the after show? There is no after show. Yeah, there's no after show. That's it. Everybody go home.